What a wonderful morning of worship so far. Uh, would you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews? Uh, we'll be in chapter 7. It's the week after Easter, you know, but we didn't want to leave the reality of our risen Savior so quickly. Uh, Pastor Tim asked me before we jump back into Romans to lead us in further reflection on what the resurrection means for us now. And we've celebrated Easter, so what's next? What's it mean for us now? And when I thought about that, I thought about what the Bible teaches us that our risen Lord is doing right now. He has risen to everlasting life and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And Hebrews 7, 24 through 25, tells us about how he uses that eternal life and that position with the Father. So let's read that text now. Hebrews 7, 24 through 25 says this, But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh, Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. As I've been praying with my daughter Evergreen, uh, I've been thinking about the ways we pray and what we pray and how we pray, and I've been trying to help her understand and, and like trying to alter language and such for her. And it's actually been quite a reviving blessing to my own prayer life. One example of what I'm talking about is how we generally end our prayers. Uh, besides amen, I haven't gotten to that yet. But before we say amen, how do we Christians generally end our prayers? Say in Jesus name, right? What does that mean? What are we really saying when we say that? Is there a different, more understandable way to say it? that maybe even little Evergreen can understand? Those are the questions I was asking myself. And what I settled on really opened my eyes and my heart in a greater way as I pray. Instead of saying we pray in Jesus' name, we say we pray with Jesus. Now, Evergreen knows what it means to pray with someone. And it captures a lot of the same ideas. That captures the idea of aligning ourselves with Jesus and his purposes and his authority and being united with him and approaching God by virtue of the access his presence provides. All the things that in Jesus' name communicates, but it does something even greater as well that I have felt and enjoyed so profoundly these last months. Saying we pray with Jesus points out that Jesus too is praying that he is praying with us, and he is praying for us. He is our intercessor and our advocate. That not only have we aligned ourselves with him, but he has aligned himself with us. And I love thinking that as I come before the Father. I love thinking that my prayers are encompassed and purified and elevated by Christ's own prayers with me. And that draws my thoughts to the biblical truths about this, that his intercession is never ceasing. That when I close my prayer with that phrase, I know that Jesus' own prayers continue. Jesus is praying for you right now. And our prayer lives, if we are honest, 
Our prayer lives often stink. But Jesus is praying for us even when we are disheveled derelicts in prayer. And it's incredibly comforting for me to know this. Imagine going about your day, your troubling day, your busy day, and you huff down the hall, but you hear something coming from the room as, as you pass, that you just passed, and you pause, and you listen, and you overhear Jesus praying. What's he praying for? He's praying for you. Could you imagine... There would be, I can't imagine anything more calming or comforting or encouraging in those moments. And the Bible tells us this is reality. Our risen Lord always lives to make intercession for us. Now, to be honest with you, this doctrine has not always been something I valued all that greatly until uh, not that long ago. And, and even through this journey of, uh, with Evergreen and, and even pre preparation of this sermon, has grown my, my love of it. Um, I never used to think about it very much or find it very edifying, and I'm probably not alone in that because it seems like in modern Christianity as a whole, this doctrine has been a bit neglected. And so I thought about why I neglected it in hopes that it will address some of the issues that have led to its wider neglect. I had problems with this doctrine that led to a distaste for it. Three main problems that have come that came from my finite and my fallen intuitions and pre-existing categories of thought. And I needed new categories, new images. And you may need that too. So let's address these issues of mine. First is that this doctrine of Christ's intercession seems to imply that Christ is for us and the Father is against us. And that, that Christ is frantically finagling to twist mercy from God on our behalf. The second problem is that it seems to imply that the work in his atonement wasn't sufficient. What I mean by his atonement is his death, his resurrection on, on our behalf. That it wasn't enough. That he has to do this other thing too. And third, and most honestly, kind of the most embarrassing, is, was that it just seemed kind of weird and kind of hard to wrap my head around how it actually works. Like, is he saying the same things over and over? Is it one prayer fits all? Or is he praying for each individual separately? And does he get sick of that? I, I, I guess what I mean is when you think of it practically, it just seems hard to imagine is what I'm getting at. So these three problems are what kept me from enjoying this doctrine. More to gut level, honestly, than anything else. So I, wanted, I want to address each of them because this is the cool thing, is that when understood rightly, these problems are more than addressed. They are transformed into glorious, worship-producing good news. I think you'll see that. So let's dive in and take my problems in the reverse order that I just shared them with you. First, it's hard to imagine the unceasing nature of this intercession in earthly terms. And of course it is. Because this is a heavenly reality. We struggle to wrap our finite minds around the inner workings and communication of the, our infinite triune God. But that's not really, that's true, but it's not really helpful in resolving the problem. What is, though, is that I believe we can move forward in our understanding as we understand this intercession as the outpouring of Jesus' heart. The constant outpouring of his heart, that his constant love offers up a ceaseless plea. His endless compassion breathes an endless prayer. It's pointing to the incredibly wonderful fact 
that though he is now in glory inexpressible, he is still mindful of our lowly estate. As Charles Spurgeon says, the splendors of heaven have not made him indifferent to the sorrows of earth. I love that. He is enthroned in divine majesty where saints and angels sing his praise. And he is in intimate fellowship with the Holy Father of light, favor flowing in palpable joy. And our majestic and mighty King of Kings is not only consciously aware but is actively occupied in concern for sinners. Caring for you and me in the courts of God, consistently and consciously lifting up the likes of us as he rules the entire course of the universe. This intercession is speaking to these two amazing truths that his heart and his mind are occupied in care for us before the Father. The outpouring of his compassionate heart for sinners and his constant and conscious remembrance of us in care and concern and commitment. And I believe if this really captures you and takes a hold of you, I think it will revolutionize your prayer life because It is an incredible example and a calling to communion. One more Charles Spurgeon quote. He says about this, I I love it so much. It's so common sense and clear and true. He says, get ye on your knees, my brethren, for on your knees knees ye conquer. He says, go to the mercy seat and remain there. What better argument can I use with you than this? Jesus is there. And if you desire his company, you must oftentimes resort thither. If you want to taste his dearest, sweetest love, do what he is doing. Union of work will create a new communion of heart. I love that. He's encouraging us to pray. And he says, what better argument can I use than Jesus is there? He is praying. If you want to be with him, join him as he prays. Do what he is doing right now. And then he says that great line, union of work will create a new communion of heart. He's saying uniting yourself with him in his intercessory work will result in communing with him heart to heart. And as we unite with him, let's consider the example and the joyful calling this places on our lives. Because he is interceding for the saints For his people, let's join him in his cause. He is thinking of us, considering us. Let us also prioritize thinking of and considering his people with him. Especially interceding for those who are tempted and those who are afflicted. He goes above and beyond for for us to save us to the uttermost. Let's not hold back in our service and affection for him. But this way of thinking works not only vertically, but horizontally as well. What I mean is Christ's example as intercessor, it will not only encourage and enliven your approach to God, but it will also encourage, give you courage and eagerness in how you approach men. I mean, think about it. If you are always on Christ's lips in heaven, shouldn't he be always on your lips on earth? If he lives to be our advocate, Let's live to be his ambassadors. 
if he owns us boldly as his own before God, let's own him boldly as our own before men. If he is pleading with God for the sake of sinners, let's plead with sinners for the sake of God. If he celebrates our salvation continually in the midst of heaven, let us celebrate our salvation continually in the midst of earth. My concerns with the practical mechanics of this, when I finally faced it, it humbled me first by my own limits. But it's also proved to be more wonderful than I could have hoped. Jesus is consistently and consciously caring for us and pouring out his heart to the Father for us. And more than that, Jesus, the word as the Bible calls him, is himself an ever-living prayer to the Most High. His very presence as the dying, rising Redeemer King is the life and force of prayer. Christ himself is the greatest plea with God. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his presence now at the right hand of God is the reasoning and argument that always is gladly accepted by the Father. And that is also the beginning of the resolution to my second problem, that this doctrine of Christ's intercession seems to imply that his work of atonement wasn't enough or wasn't sufficient to save me, which I know isn't true from reading the rest of Scripture, right? We speak of the finished work of Christ on the cross. It is finished. So why, if it's finished, why is Christ's intercession necessary to save us to the uttermost? Hasn't he already done all that is necessary? But this problem comes from a little bit of a skewed perspective. As I saw understanding about this, this doctrine, I realized that I have been thinking of salvation in overly mechanical and formulaic terms rather than in personal terms. Right? It's, not a serve, it's not a saving formula. This plus this equals this. It's, it's a saving person. We can think of salvation in similar terms, accidentally, of how deists think of creation. That the God of deism, for example, created a world like a giant clock and set it in motion and then stepped back and watched uninvolved. But Jesus did not die and rise again for us just to then stand back with folded arms and watch how we'll do. He continues to work on our behalf. He goes to the uttermost for us advocating for us when no one else will, interceding for us even when we don't do it for ourselves. He is more committed to your salvation than you are. He's more involved in it than you are. Our salvation is not mechanistic or formulaic, and that can sometimes lead to a kind of a cold view of it, but it is not cold or mechanical. It is as warm as Christ's heart for us. Our salvation is incredibly personal. The same fire of love that burned within Jesus for you, that drove him to live and die and rise again for you, it also drives him to plead for you. But the complete answer to my problem is found in asking, what is that substance of his plea? And that is, of course, his work of atonement. Dane Ortland says it like this, intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. Atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. And that's so clear, isn't it? That he has accomplished our salvation and is now applying it in real time. 
And so his present intercession doesn't negate the sufficiency of his sacrifice. It actually points to the completeness of his victory and the fullness of his saving work because he's consistently drawing on it and pointing to it. Why? Because we continue to sin as believers. And he is a complete savior, aiming to save us to the uttermost. So he intercedes, applying his past atoning work moment by moment before the Father. As we live our lives, falling short, failing as we do, Jesus is our advocate. I love that passage in 1 John 2 that says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he is the propitiation of our sins. Jesus advocates us. For us, based on the merits of his own sufferings and death. It is a certain rock solid case in our defense that we can be certain carries the day. His strength and his resolve to save you cannot be outmatched by your sin. Your sin cannot be greater than the case he brings for your acceptance, that he has paid for it. He advocates for you in your sin. In it, not just after it. Remember him on the cross praying? What did he pray? Father, forgive them. For <laughs> Those people that he was asking God to forgive, they weren't seeking forgiveness for themselves. And when you feel like you can't pray for yourself, he is still praying for you. When under the weight of sin, your shame won't let you look to God, You think you can't. You think it would be a waste of time. Even then, he's praying for you. Especially then, according to that 1 John passage, it says he's advocating for you then. I want you to understand Christ's intercession so that you never need to be afraid of him casting you out or refusing to welcome you back. Imagine that prodigal son story that Jesus told us. Imagine it just a little bit differently. So when Jesus told it, the, remember how the son, he sins so greatly and he finally comes back home to just be a servant. No longer a son. But the father runs out to greet him and, he, and he, before he, way before he makes it to the door. And the son is lavished with love and feels assured and confident of his return. But I think there's another way that he would have had that same assurance. Imagine if he did make it all the way back to the door. And before he knocks, he hears his father praying out loud. And he leans in close to hear what he's praying. And he's praying that his son would return. Any fear or uncertainty about his return to his father's and his father's acceptance, that would disappear. He would say, oh, my coming back is an answer to my father's prayer. Of course he'll gladly receive me. I'm about to answer this prayer he's praying right now. Because of Christ's intercession and advocacy, you don't need to be hesitant in coming to God because Christ is praying for you to come. He prays for you even when you don't pray for yourself. He's praying for you to be saved and to be saved to the uttermost. It's through his advocacy and our trusting in it that our sins will be conquered. Jesus is pleading our case on the basis of his life and death and burial and resurrection. It assures us of the Father's welcome. 
Because Christ's fulfillment of the law and his bearing the penalty is the argument that always prevails with God. Our union with the Son, our risen Lord, assures us of our reception in his Father's house. And that union with Jesus is not static or stale. It is active and living. Jesus is always bringing you with him to the Father. But all this leads to my third problem, that this doctrine seems to imply that Christ is for us, but the Father is against us. Which I know isn't true from other scriptures, but it's hard to shake that feeling from this need for Christ to intercede and advocate for us. It's hard to shake the feeling that the Father is is reluctant to receive us, or cold, or even wanting to punish. And Jesus is kind of begging, like begging before him, and the Father's like, oh, all right, I guess I'll spare them. But this is a completely false view. Christ was given for us because the Father loved us. That's what John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So why does the doctrine of intercession make us think this way? I think it's because we're bringing our messed up views of prayer and overlaying them onto how we understand Jesus is praying. For us, too often, prayer is an effort to manage God rather than cooperate with him and commune with him. We tell him what he needs to do. Using prayer to get him to do the things we need like he's a vending machine. And so we think that's how Jesus is praying. He's managing God, but for us. But prayer is better seen as cooperation with God and communion with God. And if anyone prays perfectly, it's Jesus. The scriptures tell us that Jesus and the Father, they were in this plan of salvation together, united as always in the plan of salvation. It is the Father's will and delight that Jesus intercede for us. He wants to receive you in Jesus Christ. It is, it is his, he is eager to say yes and amen to Christ's pleas on our behalf. And we need to understand the distinction between the objective and the subjective elements of God's salvation. His wrath needed to be objectively satisfied. But it was him who ordained that satisfaction at great cost. His justice requires objective acquittal. But his heart is subjectively as compassionate as the son's. Jeremiah taught in Lamentations 3, he does not afflict from his heart. And when the Apostle Paul spoke of the Father, he called him the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He doesn't hate you and love Jesus. He loves you. So the Father and the Son hatched a plan together to redeem you in Christ. And knowing this, it changes our perspective of Christ's intercession. Because think of when you see a movie or a show about like an admirable defense attorney. One that you're really on the side of. And, and, and you feel like applauding and eager when you see them win. You wish you were on the jury to side with them on the side of justice. When you hear them making their grand closing statements that you want to applaud and rejoice. And that is how God feels when Jesus intercedes. Except he is the judge and the jury. And he is applauding and rejoicing. Or if you are into sports, when you're cheering on your team, even when they are clearly winning, 
you still rejoice with each score. You don't sit back all calm and complacent, especially if you're actively actually at the game and especially if your kid is on the team. You encourage them and affirm and celebrate in solidarity. That's how the father feels about his son's salvation. Both the accomplishment of it through the atonement and the application of it through his intercession. But that same cheering, encouraging solidarity is what the son feels towards you. He's with you and for you, pleading on your behalf, interceding to save you to the uttermost. Now, I know all this may seem like high-minded theologizing, but A.W. Tozer once wrote that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if he is even close to being right, as I suppose he is, then few things will shape that most important thought like this doctrine will. And it will shape us. It will shape our minds and our souls and our lives. It can free us if you really understand it. Because we all are enslaved to the compulsion to advocate for ourselves. To excuse ourselves. To defend ourselves. We fallen human beings have it in our nature. From when we're first able to talk, even little Evergreen is already beginning to make excuses for her misbehavior though she doesn't do it nearly as much as most of the adults I know. We not only sin, but we respond to our own sin, not usually with instinctive repentance, but with instinctive minimizing and explaining away, making a case for why things aren't really our fault or why it's not as bad as it seems. And we don't just, and we don't just do this to convince other people. We do it to make ourselves feel better. And convince and fool ourselves. We also do it to God. We come to him with our cleaned up self, hiding the parts we think he shouldn't see, explaining away and minimizing what we think he wouldn't like. And he wants to know. He wants you to know you don't have to do that anymore. He wants to place his finger over our mouths in the middle of your intricate maneuvering and breathless self-advocacy. And just say, I know how far you've fallen. And it's further than you can let yourself think right now. But you don't need to advocate for yourself anymore. Rest. There is one who will advocate for you. And he brings an infinitely better case than you could ever offer. Without any blame shifting. Without lies. He advocates in perfect justice by his all-sufficient sacrifice of himself in your place. So you can be real without fear and you can be honest and be accepted. You can be freed from needing to be your own advocate. Freed from scrambling to contribute to your own sense of worthiness. Freed from the shackles of secret self-conscious feelings of inferiority while portraying yourself as more virtuous than you know yourself to be. Freed to leave yourself in the capable hands of Christ. The righteous one. The advocate with the Father who ever lives to make intercession for you. You don't need to make any defense for yourself. None. Don't minimize or excuse or explain away your sin. Do something better with it. 
take it to him who is at the right hand of the Father, who has paid for it in full and will plead your case perfectly. When you do this, you are stripping sin and Satan of their power because they are becoming tools in God's hands to draw you near. And I pray that we all learn this, this to, take, to let our unrighteousness lead us to the righteousness of Christ. To let our darkness drive us to his light. To run to him for hope in the midst of our despair. Knowing that he is interceding for us. Last week, I was asked to share the Exodus story at a, a Seder celebration by, by Brad. And so I read through that story again, and, and one passage jumped off the page to me when I was reading it. When the Israelites, they were panicked because they're seemingly trapped next to the Red Sea, if you remember. And Moses, when they're, they're panicking, and they're kind of being mean to Moses. And Moses says, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. John Bunyan wrote the pilgrim, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he once was writing about this doctrine and, and he wrote about also our tendency to self-advocate. And he said something similar to what Moses said. He said, since we are rescued by him, let us as to ourselves lay our hand upon our mouth and be silent. Be at peace. Be freed by this truth of our amazing Savior who is able to save you to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for you as you draw near to the Father through him. It's only then that you can experience the blessed reality, the freeing reality of the forgiveness of sins. C.S. Lewis once said, I find that when I think I'm asking God to forgive me, I am often in reality asking him to do something quite different. I'm asking him not to forgive me, but to excuse me. But there's all the difference in the world between forgiving and excusing. Forgiveness and excusing are almost opposites. If you had a perfect excuse, you would not need forgiveness. If your actions need forgiveness, then there's no excuse. But the trouble is that what we call asking God's forgiveness very often consists in asking God to accept our excuses. And then he says the remedy to this, though, is to really and truly believe in the forgiveness of sins. A great deal of our anxiety to make excuses comes not from really believing it, from thinking that God will not take us to himself again unless he's satisfied by some sort of case that can be made out in our favor. But that's not forgiveness at all. Real forgiveness means looking steadily at the sin, the sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing it in all of its horror, dirt, meanness, malice, and nevertheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. And Lewis's own experience speaks to the power of this real belief in the forgiveness of sins. Because a few years before he wrote that essay, he had a kind of spiritual awakening. Even though he'd been a Christian for a long time, at the age of 53, he had this, thing, this experience. And he wrote of it to this Italian priest that he had a correspondence with in Latin. And he said to him, During the past year, a great joy has befallen me. Difficult though it is, I shall try to explain it in words. For a long time, I believed that I believed in the forgiveness of sins. But suddenly, this truth appeared in my mind in so clear a light that I perceived that never before had I believed it with my whole heart. 
And then he said to his friend that this experience emboldened him to say to him that you write too much about your own sins. Beware lest humility should pass over into anxiety or sadness. It is bidden to us rejoice and always rejoice. Jesus has canceled the handwriting that was against us. Lift up our hearts. I love that through his awakening to the real deep belief in God's forgiveness, he goes on to address these two opposite errors. On the one side, making excuses for yourself, and so you miss out on the blessing of really experiencing forgiveness. And on the other hand, this humility, this anxious humility that wallows in guilt and then misses the blessing of forgiveness. Through our advocate, we are freed from both. Freed from the anxiety to make excuses and freed from the anxious sadness of enduring shame. Free to lift up our hearts in joy because Jesus has canceled the handwriting that is against us. And he pleads our case by his extraordinary sufficient sacrifice of his own life. Lewis wrote to someone a few years after this awakening to the gospel that he had and he called it the most blessed thing that's ever happened to me. I pray that we too through meditating on Christ's intercession, can be freed from being our own advocates and really experience the freedom of the forgiveness of God. Not just accepting it, but realizing it so that it sinks into our marrow, into our substance, and it's palpable and real like the way it was for Lewis. And as he encouraged his friend, we can lift up our hearts but it's not just ourselves and our, and our anxieties and advocacy, self-advocacy that this doctrine frees us from. It's also the accusations of the world and the devil. My favorite text about this, this doctrine, that I have exercised great self-control in not sharing up until this point in the sermon, is Romans 8. It says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, what can anyone say against us when Christ himself, our king, is interceding for us? Who can bring a charge against us? Who can condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died for us. But even more than that, he rose again to ascend to the right hand of God where he presently and eternally intercedes on our behalf. Who could possibly separate us from such love? And he goes on to say, nobody, of course. Not tribulation or persecution. Not famine or nakedness. Not danger or sword, not death or life, not angels or demons, not things present or things to come, not powers or rulers, not anything in all creation can separate us from this profound and persistent love of God in Christ Jesus, our advocate. We are firmly planted in the love of God through Christ. Our standing with him will never end. Because his intercession will never end. And his intercession will never end because his love for us will never end. So what weight can slanderous accusations hold in light of such truth? We must have this truth sink deeply into our hearts because Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, 
for I have overcome the world. We don't live and die on the opinions of others because we live in the approval of the Father through the intercession of Christ. We don't fear the accusations of the evil one because we have the defense of the righteous one. We can have a profound peace even in the face of criticism because we can say, you don't know the half of it. I'm worse than you even know. But I am accepted and forgiven by Jesus. I am ever enveloped in his prayers and I am confident in his powerful love. I am who he says I am and he says I am loved and I am redeemed and I am his. And I'm not yet perfect. I know that all too well. But I am in the process of being saved to the uttermost. And when I, when I sin, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is, who is the propitiation of my sins and who is never ashamed to have me as his own, even on my worst days. And therefore, I will never be ashamed to have him, no matter what you say about me. Our text says through his intercession, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Be one of those today. Draw near to God through Jesus today. Face God fully, honestly. Not trusting in yourself, but trusting in all that Jesus is for you. In all that he has done for you. In all that he is doing for you. And as you draw near to God through Jesus, be assured that though you are an uttermost sinner, he is an uttermost savior. And you will without a doubt be saved and saved to the uttermost. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you for loving us and making a way for us to be with you through Jesus. I pray that your forgiveness will become a real and deep joy in our hearts, that we will feel in tune with reality and live in the liberating truth of Jesus' past and present work on our behalf. Humble us and embolden us as only your good news can. We pray with Jesus. Amen.